0: Well, good morning, church, and happy new year. new year. You won't get a Merry Christmas from me. That, that ended yesterday, sorry. But it is the first Sunday of the year, so I'll give you a happy new year. Uh, most of you know me, but if, uh, if you're new around here and you don't, I'm Kenny. I have the privilege of serving as a part of the staff team here uh, at the Grove Church, and um, I am a church-planting resident uh, here. This morning... Uh, it's going to be sort of a part two to last week's sermon. Uh, but if you weren't here, you hadn't heard that, You'll it won't be uh, hard to, to follow. Um, and then next week, Pastor Caleb will, will launch into our preaching uh, plan for 2024. Uh, last week, we examined the New Jerusalem, this final destination for we believers. If you are a Christian, if you have put your faith In Jesus, your final destination is this incredible community where all of us live together in harmony and we never, ever sin against one another. It's remarkable. Where we get to be close to one another and experience and enjoy all of the the benefits and pleasures of relationship and community without any of the heartbreak, hurt, or sin that usually comes along with relationships and community. Say glorious, glorious truth. And the best part is that Jesus will be right in the center of that community and that his beauty and majesty and glory will fill the city and his glory will be soul satisfying to us. And together we will enjoy him forever and ever. Pastor Ryan just prayed for a family in our church this week that lost a baby. And um, as a father, I don't think I have any, I don't think there's anything inside of me that I can't wrap my mind around that. I can't. But I know there's going to come a day where we walk into that city with pains in our heart and he's going to put his finger Jesus will put his finger on those pains and he will wipe them away. The families that have experienced miscarriages or deaths or other heartbreaks, tragedies, there's all sorts of things that we've experienced and you carry those with you all the days of of your life. in In this life, we carry these things with us. But Christian, there will come a day where you will walk into that city and he will take that pain and wipe it away and it will be, no more. That is a glorious truth. Last week, we looked at the life of Abraham a bit. and The writer of Hebrews tells us that Abraham was looking forward to that city. A- Abraham's got a pretty great resume. He's the great patriarch of old. He's the, the founder of, of faith, the father of faith. There's a lot of things that could be said about Abraham, but the author of the book of Hebrews thinks that the most noteworthy thing about Abraham is that Abraham was looking forward to a city. Not a city built by human hands, but a city being built by God. This morning, I want to ask a follow-up question. How does that future city shape how we live in the here and now? Like, "Yeah that's going to be glorious one day, but how does that influence us today? And again, to answer that question, I want to turn to the life of Abraham. I think there are some great things in the life of Abraham that we can learn from. Last week, I hit on one application of, of the future city. When I read from John Bunyan's "Pilgrim's Progress," I quoted Mr. Stanfast. Mr. Standfast says that the truth of that great city burns in my soul like a coal. And so that's one way in which the future city comforts us when we face difficulty in this life. We, when, when the waters of this world are cold and bitter, Mr. Stanfast says, that truth warms me from the inside. But there are several other ways in which the truth of the future city shapes our lives. And I want to go to the life of Abraham. In Abraham's life, there are several moments where he obeys God, and he clearly trusts God a lot. It's inspiring, it's awesome. And then there are moments where Abraham doesn't seem to trust God all that much. He seems to sort of lose sight of the future city. Well, this morning, I wanna take some time and look at a few of the moments where he demonstrates that he really trusts God, where he models for us what it looks like to be a person who lives in this age looking forward to the future age. So if we will pray with me again and we'll dive in to Genesis. Father in heaven, Abba Father, you have been so kind to us in so many ways. God, thank you for your Bible, this inerrant book, this sacred text. Thank you. Thank you that we have it, that we can read it, and we can learn from it, that we can learn from the life of Abraham 4,000 years later. God, thank you. God, thank you that we can freely enter into this gym to worship without fear of being arrested. We know that not all of our brethren around the globe have that sort of liberty. So this morning I say, thank you. And Father, would you please use all that we do this morning here in this gym? Would you use, use all that we do to glorify yourself And Lord, would you use all that we do to mold us, to shape us, to make us to be more like your son, Jesus. May may the things we do in this service not just be habit or routine, but may, may these be the moments where we hear from the living God and your spirit makes us to be the church that you want us to be. I ask these things in the matchless name of Jesus. Amen. If you have your Bibles, turn to Genesis 13, we're going to look at a few sections of Genesis 13 and 14. Many of you are very familiar with Abraham in many ways, probably, of course, uh, but his name was not originally Abraham. As many of you already know, his name was originally Abram. And so in Genesis 13, he is called Abram. The, the name change happens later. Last week, I mentioned that Abram and his family had been living in the city of Ur. They migrate to Haran, and then they migrate southward into the land of Canaan. And Abraham's got an entourage with him. His entourage, as I mentioned last week, is probably into the thousands of people. I think sometimes we think about Abraham... The way we teach it in Sunday school sometimes it's sort of like he's kind of this vagabond by himself in the wilderness. No, he's, he's actually kind of like a sheik. He's kind of like a, he's like a king unto its, a mini nation unto itself. It's thousands of people in Abraham's entourage with him. And they go down into the land of Canaan. And the reason they go down into the land of Canaan is because God told him to go down into the land of Canaan. And, <clears throat> land of Canaan. In the previous chapter, in Genesis 12, Uh, Abram is in the land of Canaan for a bit, and then there's a famine in the land, so he leaves. He goes down to Egypt, and he has one of those moments where he doesn't quite demonstrate that he trusts God. And he ends up getting kicked out of Egypt, and so they're back in the land of Canaan. And that's where chapter 13 picks up. In the first few verses of chapter 13, we see that Abraham also has some family with him. In particular, he has his nephew Lot With him in this entourage. And a squabble arises between Abraham's uh, servants and employees and Lot's servants and employees. So look at Genesis 13, verses 5 and 6 with me. It says Now Lot, who was traveling with Abram, also had flocks, herds, and tents, but the land was unable to support them as long as they stayed together for they had so many possessions that they could not stay together. So Abraham, Abram is wealthy. He's got servants, he's got livestock, but so does Lot. Lot's got servants, Lot's got livestock, and the land they live in is unable to support them. So it becomes obvious that at some point they're gonna have to separate. Look at Genesis 13, verses eight and nine with me. This is Abraham's response to this moment. So Abram said to Lot, Please, let's not have quarreling between you and me or between your herdsmen and my herdsmen since we are relatives. Isn't the whole land before you? Separate from me. If you go to the left, I will go to the right. If you go to the right, I will go to the left. So there's this squabbling, there's a conflict, and Abram says to Lot, listen, if I, we're gonna separate, you, you pick first. You get first draft pick here. If you go to the left, I'll go right. If you go right, I'll go left. Now, if we pay close attention to some of the details in the text, it, it, apparently Abraham and Lot are facing east. And so the left is referring to the north, and the right is referring to the south. <clears throat> they are in the promised land, and Abraham is, in essence, offering Lot half of the promised land. He's like, if you go north, you have the north end, take the north half, if you want to go south, take the south half. Fine. But you get the pick, and you take half of the land that God promised me. This is a very generous offer from Abram. Very generous. And this is the first thing we see about Abram, is that he is incredibly open-handed and generous. He is very generous. Think about this. Abram is older. He's the uncle. He's the leader He's probably got more wealth. God promised the land to him, not to Lot. Abram could have very easily said, listen, we've got a squabble. We need to separate. I'm going to take this best piece of land over here. You take the leftover part over there. But that's not what Abraham does. Abraham offers Lot the best. He's generous. And if we understand what the writer of Hebrews is saying about Abraham, we recognize Abraham is doing this because he knows there's a future city coming. When you know that there's something great coming, when you've got more coming in, you tend to be much more open-handed with what you've got. But let me give you a, a silly example. I warn you in advance, it is silly. Several years ago, I was, in a, I was a groomsman in a wedding. So we had the rehearsal dinner. So went to the rehearsal and then went to the dinner. When I got to the restaurant, a group of us got there. Uh, some of the groom's family were already eating. And so we sit down in the restaurant and I sit down across from the father of the groom and he's got several plates in front of him. And one of the plates has this, these two large lobster tails and I like lobster. And so I'm like, oh man, those are, those look good. He goes, oh, I haven't even touched that plate. If you want it, you can have it. I'm like no 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 no. He's like no no. I insist. I'm like well if you're gonna insist, you don't have to push me that hard. <laughs> so I grab those lobster tails. I take a bite and they are delicious. Less than one minute after I took my first bite, the general manager of the restaurant comes over with this big old tray and puts it in front of right in front of the father of the groom between us. And uh, <clears throat> this tray has got on it more lobster tail, jumbo shrimp. Buffalo wings, fries, mussels, onion rings, mozzarella sticks, and these little crab cakes like on a a slider roll. Oh, they were fantastic. (laughs) Absolutely excellent. And I looked at the father of the groom. I said, bro, this is great. Thank you. He smirks and he goes, yeah, I didn't mind giving you those two lobster tails because I knew I had a lot more coming. (laughs) I know that's a silly illustration, I warned you. But I think in some ways that kind of illustrates what happens in our hearts when we are confident that we've got more resources coming. We tend to be open-handed. We tend to be generous. And this is how God wants his people to live. This is how Abram lives. He makes this incredible, generous offer to Lot. Because Abram knows there's coming a day when he's going to live in a city where he's got everything he could ever possibly need. Go ahead, take the land lot. Take it. Deuteronomy 15, God says this to the Jewish people. Do not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted toward your poor brother. Later in the same chapter in verse 10, he says this, it's Deuteronomy 15:10. Give to him. Do not have a stingy heart when you give. And because of this, the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and everything you do. The people of God ought not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted or stingy. We ought to be tender-hearted, open-handed, and generous. You notice the last part of that verse, Deuteronomy 15, 10, says, the Lord your God will bless you. I think sometimes some of us are a little queasy or uncomfortable with the idea of rewards. Those of us who are kind of like in reform circles or Baptist circles, or those of us who are more conservative Protestants, we we get a little bit concerned about the idea of doing something to get something from God because it feels a little prosperity gospel-ish. You guys with me? You ever felt that? Like I just give and I don't expect anything in return. But God in Deuteronomy says, give and I will bless you back. Now, to be clear, we we disagree with the prosperity gospel preachers, we reject that theology. If you're not familiar with the prosperity gospel, these are preachers that would say, if you give to God and you're generous, then God will definitely give back to you in this life. He'll give you health and wealth and influence, money, houses, cars, stuff, whatever. Let's make it clear, we disagree with that theology around here. But those preachers are not 100% wrong. God will reward us. His word promises that. What the prosperity gospel peeps get wrong is the timing They get the timing deadly wrong. God will definitely reward us, but not primarily in this life. That may happen sometimes, but our rewards primarily will be in the age to come. We are to be generous, open-handed, give sacrificially, joyfully, knowing that when we get to that future city, there will be great rewards for us. Being generous in this life on this side of eternity guarantees rewards on that side of eternity. So in Matthew 19, this is Jesus speaking in Matthew 19. Everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or fields because of my name will receive a hundred times more and will inherit eternal life. The Apostle Paul says this to the Colossians. Colossians 3 Whatever you do, do it from the heart as something done for the Lord, not for people, knowing that you will receive the reward. Abram knew he had a reward coming and that enabled him to be generous. May that be true of us. Second thing to highlight this morning from the life of Abram as Abraham looks forward to that future city, it shapes his behavior and it inspires him to stay away from wickedness. Back, back in Genesis 13, look at the rest of the story with me. Genesis 13:10 says this. Lot looked out and saw the entire plain of the Jordan, as far as Zor was well watered, everywhere, like the Lord's garden in the land of Egypt. Lot's looking out and he sees. Man, it's, it's, it's nice out there. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose the entire plain of the Jordan for himself. Then Lot journeyed eastward, and they separated from each other. Abraham makes this incredible, generous offer. Take the north half or take the south half, whichever you want. And Lot actually takes neither of them. Lot goes eastward. Now, in the book of Genesis, three other times before Genesis 13, someone is mentioned as going eastward. And in every, in all three of those cases, that person was going away from God towards sin and ended up in some ruin. So if you're the original audience hearing this read, and you hear that Lot went eastward, you would likely go, oh, No! Don't do that, Lot! Don't go east! That never goes well! Abraham's being generous with you! Don't do it! but it was luscious. It was green. Remember, there had been a famine in Canaan. So Lot's looking out, and you're going, over there, east? Oh, that looks good. I mean, yes, yeah, Sodom and Gomorrah are there. It's wicked. There's a lot of disgustingness going on over there, but it's just luscious. And you can almost even see, you could even see Abr- Abram justifying going that direction, too. He would, listen, we can't live in this barren land. I mean, I mean You know, maybe it's not that bad. I mean, I got to take care of my family, right? But Abraham refuses to go east. Abraham, you get the sense, knows it is better to live in a barren land than to be a part of wickedness. Church, it is better to go hungry and die than to engage in wickedness. Abraham knew that there was a great city to come. Lot has, has his eyes on these two wicked cities, Sodom and Gomorrah. But Abram is looking forward to a better city, the new city, and that shapes the way he lives. Third point, third observation from the life of Abram this morning. Abram is a man of great compassion. We see this multiple times in Abram's life, actually. We see it in Genesis 14. Sometime after Abram and Lot separate, Uh, Four of the cities of the region band together. They kind of have this military coalition. And they wage war against the other cities of the region. So there's a bunch of cities in the region. Four of them band together to fight the rest of them. And two of the cities that are getting attacked are Sodom and Gomorrah. These two wicked cities that Lot ends up living in. Look at Genesis 14 verses 11 and 12. It says, the four kings took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their food and went on. They also took Abram, Abram's nephew Lot and his possessions, for he was living in Sodom. So these four cities, they attack, they plunder Sodom and Gomorrah, they take a bunch of stuff and they take hostages, and one of the hostages happens to be Lot. Later in Genesis 14, uh, Abram gets wind of this, and so Abraham gets his, gets his militia together. In verse 14, it says that he got 318 trained men. These are, these are not the sheep herders. Make it clear, this is, these are the special ops guys. These are the Navy SEALs of Abraham's nation, 318 of them. And they go after Lot, they wage, they wage a fight, and they win. Now, Abraham easily could have said, listen, I can't. I can't put myself in danger. I mean, if I die, the promise dies with me. I mean, I'm mean, i the one through which God will bless all the nations. I'm too important. I can't put myself at risk. But Abram, who loves his nephew, has compassion on his nephew, goes after him and puts himself in danger. Even though Lot clearly doesn't deserve it. It would have been easy for Abram to go, see, consequences of your sin, you get what you deserve. That's not how Abram responds. He could have. It would have been a righteous thing, maybe. Instead, Abram extends mercy and compassion. Abram is looking forward to a city. And what does he see in that city? A city populated with people who don't deserve to be there. We're going to be in the New Jerusalem, and none of us deserve to be there. The only reason we will be there is because God has extended compassion and mercy to us. Abram understands this. God had rescued him from the pagan lands. He recognizes this is mercy undeserved from God to me. Who am I to withhold that from someone else? Church, when we see others in danger, when we see others suffering, even when they brought it upon themselves... Our first reaction ought to be compassion. Certainly there's a time for righteous accountability. But when someone is suffering, even it's because of their own sin, our knee-jerk reaction, our, in, our, our impulse ought to be compassion, tender-heartedness, because that is God's response to us. Last point this morning, last thing I want to observe from Abraham's life, it's this. Abraham was consumed with God getting all of the glory. Here in Genesis 14, Abram's militia, they go get Lot, they fight, they win, and they bring back all the hostages and all the stuff that was stolen from Sodom and Gomorrah, and they bring it back, and they're in this valley in between the cities, And when he gets back from the battle, Abram meets this man named Melchizedek, which is this unbelievable, glorious moment that we don't have time to talk about this morning. Ah, I love love Melchizedek. Um, He's just, it's just an incredible, amazing moment that we have to skip. I'm sorry. And then after this moment, the king of Sodom comes out to Abram and says to Abram in verse 21, Genesis 14, 21, The king of Sodom says, give me the people, but take the possessions for yourself. Listen, you earned it. Take all that stuff. Now, I would imagine there was some pretty valuable stuff. I mean, four cities launched a war to get a bunch of this stuff. So I would imagine it was pretty valuable. Abram's already quite wealthy but this would have probably expanded his wealth significantly. And you can almost see from a natural perspective how this is going to work out. Okay, God said he's going to bless Abram, he's going to he's going to make him a great nation, Abram's going to own all this land. Well, this is the way God's going to do it. All of this stuff is going to go to Abram. Abram's going to be big and rich and powerful and influential and that's how it's going to grow. It's going to be yes, it makes sense. That's the way but Abraham is not having it. Look at Abram's response. Verses 22 to 23. I have raised my hand in an oath to the Lord, God most high, creator of heaven and earth. That I will not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that belongs to you. So you can never say, I made Abram rich. Abram's like, I don't really need you, King of Sodom, Mr. Wicked King. I don't need you because the God I serve created the heavens and the earth. <laughs> what do I need your stuff for? Abram's like, listen, Mr. Wicked King, I don't want a dime from you. I don't even want a sandal strap from you, Abram told him. I was like offended for it. I'm like, oh, gosh, that's like, that's not even a sandal strap? Man, Abram. Abraham knows there's coming a day where his name's going to be famous, where everyone's going to know him, and there's going to be a great nation that comes from him. He knows that. And he wants to make sure when that day comes that God gets all of the credit. He wants to make sure that when people go, look at Abram, that they go, he's got a great God. He doesn't want them to ever say, I think the king of Sodom did that. Abraham wants people to see God. He is consumed with the glory of God. He cares about God's reputation more than wealth or power or land or influence. He cares about God's name being made great. There's actually a lot of examples of this. There's some really good examples throughout the pages of the Old Testament of people being concerned with God's name being made great. There's a lot of people who didn't care, but there are lots of great examples of people who did. One of my personal favorites, It's my personal favorite, is from the life of David. David lives a thousand years after Abram. And before he becomes the, the great king of Israel that we know him to be, when he's just a boy, a shepherd boy, he finds himself on a battlefield, looking at, staring down a Philistine giant by the name of Goliath. And David says this to Goliath. This comes from 1 Samuel 17. David says to him, Today the Lord will hand you over to me. Today I will strike you down. Remove your head and give the corpses of the Philistine camp to the birds of the sky and the wild creatures of the earth. Goliath, I'm going to cut off your head and then I'm going to feed your body and all of your friends' bodies so the birds of the air. It's a very godly tone you can see here. <laughs> There's a little bravado to David here. Then, this is what David says, then all the world will know that Israel has a God. David didn't care about land or popularity or his, being, his name being made great. He wasn't, he wasn't trying to manipulate his way to the throne. David was not trying to show that great things come in little packages. I heard that once from a Bible preacher preaching about David and Goliath. I cringed a bit. No. David cared about one thing. I'm going to kill you, Goliath, so that all will know who is really in charge. Yahweh, the one true God. David's highest priority is the same as Abram's highest priority, that God would get all the credit. Both David and Abram and others in the scriptures wanted the pagans to know who is really in charge. So these are the four things we see from the life of Abram. As he's looking forward to this great, future city as we see here in these few chapters abraham is generous and open-handed he refuses to engage in wickedness abraham is compassionate and abraham was consumed with the glory of god all of this happened in abram's heart and mind and life because he was looking forward to a great city the new city, the city that is to come. And this will happen to us as well. The more we look forward to those to that future city, the more these four things will be cultivated in our life. You can't just muster this up. You can't just go, "Oh, I'm going to be more compassionate. Mm-hmm. Like, it didn't work that way. That's not how it happens. If you find yourself not living these four things out well, it's because you've taken your eyes off of the prize. And the more you recalibrate your eyes, the more you think about, meditate about, meditate on, the more you are consumed with the reality of the future city, the more these four things will grow in your life, almost accidentally. Abram did this. He did it well. But he didn't do it perfectly all of the time. There are moments where Abram failed miserably. There are moments in Abram's life where he clearly takes his eyes off the city and he then begins to make bad decisions. There are moments like that in Abram's life. So Abram is not the best example to follow. He is a good example, but not the best. There is a better one. The Bible tells us about someone who is always these things, always looking forward to the future city. And you know the answer. It's Jesus. Jesus is far more generous than Abram. Jesus gave his life, suffered an incredible death so that we could be with him in the future city. And Paul says in Romans that Jesus, because of his work, we are heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. Jesus is generous. Jesus refused to engage in wickedness. He never has a moment of failure. He never has a moment where he takes his eyes off the prize. We read last week in Hebrews 12, where it says that for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. He has the joy in sight and he goes after it. Never takes his eyes off the prize. He does what needs to be done so that we could be rescued. His refusal to engage in wickedness causes him, garners him victory over sin, death, and the grave so that now he can remove our wickedness from us and usher us into that great city to come. Jesus never engaged in wickedness. Jesus was compassionate. Six times in the Gospels in the New Testament, six separate times we are told That Jesus' actions and behavior are inspired by his compassion. We see this multiple times where he is filled with compassion and then he steps in. His compassion inspired him to rescue us. He saw us in danger and he intervened. He jumped into action so that we could be with him in that future city. And Jesus was consumed with the glory of God. Over and over and over again, we see Jesus pointing glory to his father. He was consumed with his father getting all of the credit. His father being glorified. Jesus is the better Abraham. Abraham is a good model for us. Jesus is the better model for us. And because of what Jesus has accomplished on our behalf. Because of his love and mercy towards us. Because of what Jesus has done. Because of what he has accomplished. We will be with him in that future city. Living together in perfect harmony. Together treasuring Christ forever and ever and ever. May that truth inspire you and strengthen you forever and ever. Amen. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven,